How do prisoners govern? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with David Scarbeck. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with David Scarbeck. David is Associate Professor of Political Science at Brown University. His research examines how extra-legal governance institutions form, operate, and evolve. And he has published extensively on the informal institutions that govern life in prisons in California and around the globe. His work has appeared in leading journals in political science, economics, and criminology, including the American Political Science Review, and the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, just to name a couple. His work has been featured widely in national and international media outlets as well, such as The Atlantic, BBC, Business Insider, The Economist, Forbes, The Independent, and The Times. He is the author of the award-winning book, The Social Order of the Underworld, How Prison Gangs Govern the American Penal System. But today, we'll be focusing more on his recent book, which was only released a few months ago, The Puzzle of Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. David, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. I'm happy to be in conversation with you. And it's great to have you here today. We base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, how do prisoners govern? And before our discussion really takes off, I'd like to set the stage with a couple of sort of broader points. In your book, you note, what happens on the inside matters for the rest of society. Why? Uh, For a variety of different reasons. I I think the most practical one is that somewhere between 95 and 98% of people who are in prison today will return uh, to the community, to our communities. And so we should care about how they're treated, whether they're sort of reformed, whether they're improving their prospects in life for after release, uh, or in some cases, whether they're sort of being abused, whether they're becoming more involved in criminal activity. So in a very practical way, we should care a great deal about that. Um, I think there's also just sort of a broader normative reason that um, if we as society are going to use prisons um, we have a duty to have minimum levels of quality and care and amenities and services for these people. The sort of like common saying is that we send people to prison for punishment or as a punishment, but not to receive punishment while there. Um, and then practically in, in another sort of aspect is that um, in some prisons there are really powerful gangs. And those gangs today are often de facto governments to the street gangs that exist out in society. And so what happens in those prisons often allows crime to flourish, um, even on the streets while people are still incarcerated. Right. And of course, we'll get into lots of specifics later as we drill down. But I guess at at the high level, from a broader perspective, it is true. A lot of people seem to think that there's sort of this clean dividing line between the inside and the outside, if you will. And as you've just highlighted, there are obviously, when you think about it, ties between both sides. It's not as if, you know, we just send people off, as you said, for punishment and and they just kind of sit there for however many years and come back out same old, same old, or whatever the case may be, and, and there you go. There's obviously a lot a lot of bridges back and forth in, in many ways, both, both socially, psychologically, and, and what have you. Yeah, we often think of prisons as like the prison Alcatraz, right? It's isolated from the from the city, it's on an island, um, but that it couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, you know, prisons have very porous walls. And then, of course, you, you also say in the intro of your book that aside from the fact that we have to actually care about what happens inside... Beyond that, we have much to learn about politics and economics by studying prisoners and, and prison. And, and of course, um, you, you also note that 
outside of prisons, we observe, obviously, it's obvious to most people if you bring their attention to it, that life is a mix of official institutions and, and social customs. But what's interesting is that when we take a look at prisons, the same is true. Uh, when, when conditions are stable, life is relatively good and, and people can flourish, again, relatively. And then the, the opposite means, well, the opposite. So it's, so it's interesting that I guess it's, it's still very hard for people to take the mentality that they have about the outside life and kind of apply it to prisons, but you find that there's a lot of similar things, new things we can learn, but a lot of similar things to look at that make it relatable. Yeah, I, mean, I think prisons are, can be understood very much as a sort of microcosm of society. And it's very similar in that, you know, people bring their customs, their habits, their understandings and ideologies from the outside into the prison with them. And there are sources in some prisons of uh, significant government control and authority. Uh, but in many respects, um, prisons aren't as controlled by officials as many people assume that they are. So in the book, I talk about some prisons where officials don't even enter the prison facility. Uh, but even in the United States, there's a lot of uh, scope for um, individual action and self-governance amongst prisoners where there's no third party that can create rules, uh, resolve disputes um, to regulate the prisoners. And so often prisoners have to do that uh, themselves. To drill a little deeper into that point, one thing the book notes is that prison orders or however the, the institutional structure ends up being uh, are, are very diverse across the world. As you said, I think a lot of us, especially in America and Canada, are probably heavily influenced by either news media or what we see in movies of what quote unquote prison life is. But I guess it makes total sense, right? Again, on the outside, if we could picture diverse types of societies around the world on the outside, when we get to prisons, the same must be true. Yeah, well, in you know, prisons are actually really fundamentally very distinct institutions, regardless of where we examine them. So like by definition or practice, like when I put my social science hat on, there's four characteristics that really like stand out to me about all the characteristics that all prisons share and that are really important characteristics. And so like the first is that prisons don't attract people in them at random, right? These are, there's a, there's a selection effect where people who have been charged with or convicted of a crime are sent to the prison. There's also like a selection bias in that around the world, prisoners come disproportionately from disadvantaged socioeconomic and ethnic minority communities. And in a prison, we have very little opportunity to choose with whom to interact, right? We can't say, I'm you don't choose who's a part of our community, essentially. You're, you're sort of forced to interact with people. And of course, there's, there's no exit option from prisons. So th that is true of prisons around the world. Each of those characteristics when we think from a social science perspective, determines whether interactions are going to be positive or negative, some ones. And despite those similarities, the informal life of prisons around the world often varies like dramatically in tremendous ways. And so the, I guess the goal of the book is to try to understand that, that variation. Right. And as I said, we'll get into some deeper specifics later, but it is interesting that you still kind of end up with just again, like on the outside, you, you get this spectrum with prisons where you mention, you know, some you find are democratic and quite stable, uh, while others, you know, you can get into the details, of course, but, uh, you know, there's there's collusion between rich prisoners and guards and other forms of corruption. So, again, as this idea of a society within a society, there's not only a spectrum of diversity, it seems, because they happen to be at in di within different cultures and around the world, but also d depending on, as you said, how the structure is of the prison, there's even sort of almost like, in a way, and metaphors are clunky, but there's almost like a, a political or governance spectrum you could think of within the prison system as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, there's a, a spectrum of Bahan, 
uh, well, there's variation about how much our officials governing, how well are they governing. Uh, there's a spectrum along which um, prisoners themselves self-govern very effectively. And then in some instances, prisoners self-govern very poorly. Um, so there's, there's sort of replication, you know, there, there's not, there are not replications, but there are, um, productions of po political like and governance institutions in these prisons. And they're responding to many of the same problems that we typically think governments are ideally designed to respond to problems of facilitating social order, of uh, empowering institutions to protect rights, but then constraining those in institutions from preying on those rights. So yeah, I think there's a tremendous number of parallels between sort of just general problems in political economy and the problems that prisoners face on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. Right. And to add to that point that you just made there, like, I think I just pulled a quote here and I had noted, I think this is a good place for it. Um, sometimes I think, you know, a lot of us have a tendency, even if we don't mean to just subconsciously, even for a split second, you know, when, when we, maybe it's because of media, maybe it's because we're used to, and we, our attention isn't called to it every day. We sort of think of, you know, the prisoner as someone fundamentally different from us at, at times for whatever reason. But I, I like a quote from your book here. Where you said, most prisoners want the same things we all want such as good food, clean water, effective healthcare, and opportunities for education and recreation. And as you said, sometimes they seem to rely on officials for this and other times themselves. But again, we see those obviously fundamental seeds of humanity across the prison system. At least that's what you've seen in your studies. Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, they, they are us, you know, and especially in the United States where, uh, you know, the prison system locks up lots of people, you know, they are very literally our friends and our family and our neighbors. Um, and it's easy to, uh, forget about them and to sort of, you know, prisons that have, have in a way a sort of degrading effect in many places. Um, but, you know, these are worthy, you know, individuals of our respect and esteem, and they are just like us. And, and on that note, actually, you, so you mentioned a little earlier when we were talking about another question, actually, that technically speaking, what should be happening is that people go to prison for a punishment that's the that's the punishment itself rather than they don't go to prison as the punishment and then they get punished there there again um could you talk a bit about the the spectrum you see there across your study so do some pr prisons for instance take uh the approach you talked about which is that you are here to be punished and we're not he here to punish you while you're here or is or on the one hand and on the other hand do you see like the obviously the most extreme of extremes tell us a bit about that sort of spectrum yeah i mean i, I think there's sort of three main um, you know, categories or types that jump out. But the first are the Nordic prison systems, places like Norway and Sweden. Um, they have invested an incredible amount of resources per prisoner. Their facilities are clean, um, modern. Prisoners have their, uh, their own rooms, uh, to sleep in. They were given, uh, you know, nutritious food. They have access to healthcare, a wide range of educational and vocational programs that they can participate in. And, you know, to the extent that any prison system is rehabilitative, it seems like the, the Nordic systems do that well. They come closest to that ideal. Um, the U.S. context is in a sort of middle range. Um, their prisons tend to be large. Um, the food, there's food that's provided, but it's not necessarily uh, as much as prisoners want. It's not necessarily as nutritious or, or delicious as prisoners want. Healthcare in uh, U.S. prisons tends to be uh, you know, very, very poor, uh, not very good at all. And there's, you know, frequent complaints about the availability for genuinely useful training programs and, and often very few educational opportunities. Um, so this is a place where people are sort of confined, um, but not given resources to, to flourish. 
uh, but they're also constrained in being able to sort of exercise their ability to um, make investments on their own to try to improve on the sort of life they, they live. Um, and, and then the other far extreme are some prisons in Latin America where prisoners um, are incarcerated in a facility, um, but the officials have incredibly little presence in the facility. So there are prisons where there are no guards within the prison. They simply regulate the perimeter of the facility and make sure that prisoners don't leave. They, they provide very few resources even to the prisoners. However, they do give prisoners the freedom to access people from outside of the prison, to access resources from outside of the prison. Many prisoners in Latin America can rely extensively on visits from friends and family for resources. And so those are sort of three of, three of the most sort of, I think, notable um, types of incarceration around the world. And actually, before I move on to some follow-up questions on those three and, and into other things, I, I'd like to actually dive a little deeper into the U.S. Uh, one for a second, because we do have a lot of listeners from the U.S. and Canada, and a lot of people relate to the, the, the U.S. sort of uh, portrayal. So you said like within relative to that range, you find that the U.S. is sort of in the middle of, of the, the sort of spectrum you just set up there. I think, and I'm just sort of pulling upon news stories I may have read or others may have too, that when you kind of zoom in into the U.S. system too, even within the U.S. system, there's sort of a range within that range that you're talking about as well, I would think. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So California and Texas are the two largest prison systems. My first book was primarily on the California prison system. Um, it's home to about 35 prisons. Each prison holds about 3,500 or 4,000 prisoners. Um, they are dominated by gangs. Prison officials have a very adversarial relationship with the typical prisoner. They're not building sort of productive relationships between them. Uh, but if you look at other prison systems, um, Vermont, Rhode Island, um, they're smaller. They uh, provide more resources. They provide more opportunities. So, yeah, there's absolutely a lot of subnational variation within the U.S. And even in, within prison systems on their own, there's a lot of variation. So San Quentin prison, for example, is uh, the oldest prison in California it was built in 1851 when California became a state. And uh, it has a tremendous number of programs and many prisoners are sort of eager to get a transfer to that facility. Whereas other places like Corcoran Prison or Pelican State uh, Prison, they have very few opportunities for, for programs. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of variation um, without a doubt. And and before we move on to, again, a couple of the questions, it just it just strikes me to ask sort of like your almost like your, your personal opinion on, on the sort of the, the rehabilitation versus the, the, the more more punishment side. I mean, like we're not going to have three hours on legal theory here, but but just just uh, you've, you've studied it a lot. You're, you're very familiar with the topic. You've seen a lot different kinds of prisons. You've seen spectrums within spectrums of this kind of stuff. And um, in terms of sort of that balance where do you see the the spectrum as as the best if you will when you come away from all of this what 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 do you think looks quote unquote the best if you had to go to prison well i mean i think you know it's a big normative question about you know should we have prisons and if we have them for what purpose do we use them and i think prisons are very good at incapacitating people most prisoners in the united states can't escape and so they they do that well um prison as a punishment yeah, they, they do that pretty well too. You know, it's, 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 it's painful to be incarcerated. Um, there's some evidence that the prospect of going to prison deters people from committing crime as well. Although I think that that's much less effective than alternative, alternative ways of doing so. And when it comes to rehabilitation, you know, I, I think that in prisons uh, in the United States, it's very difficult to 
understand how someone could sort of have a radical transformation in their life in a place that is impoverished, um, stressful, um, uncaring. And it, 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 I find it difficult to believe that like substantive, dramatic, life transforming rehabilitation can take place in prison. I know that there are programs that on the margin, I think, improve um, prisoners uh, post uh, incarceration prospects. But I think we often are a little too optimistic about the ability for rehabilitation to happen in a significant and systematic way. So when I sort of look at all of those um, particular uses for prisons, I think that we should use them sparingly. And I think that in concerns about public safety and crime, there's a lot of other ways we can reduce crime, such as hiring more police, um, that we can use instead of punishing people after they commit crimes. Right. And I think that's why this topic and your work on it is actually very important, right? Because you need to understand the way these institutions work, how they function, and how the prisoners in the prison interact with that system. Because it's easy for, you know, me and you to sit down here and say, for instance, oh, yeah, you know, um, you know, deterrence legal theory is great. No, this should be crime and punishment, that kind of stuff or rehabilitation. Yeah, we need more of that. But until we actually understand how things work in there, and as you said, if it's even possible in some frameworks to have a form of rehabilitation, what are we really doing in that conversation, right? Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. And prisons are also embedded in a broader criminal justice system, which is embedded in a broader political system, which is embedded in a broader population with ideologies and philosophies. And so, you know, it, it's a little bit of a cop out, but, you know, we can't understand how prison should be unless we understand the broader context in which you know, they operate. And so I think it's a big, difficult problem. And, and we still have a lot of work to do to sort of understand, you know, how much we should use prisons and how we should use prisons if we choose to use them. And I think, again, your book does an excellent job of breaking down in, in many ways how we can actually understand these institutions better. So I'm actually going to shift gears into that now. And so we're going to get into some serious meat of the matter here. And I always say when I have a guest that we're going to get into some details with that we, of course, always encourage everyone when and where they can find the book available that to go check out the book itself. There's no way we can take care of everything in this conversation, but we can always sort of graze the high level and, and get some interesting points going. So one of the core elements of your book on this topic is, is understanding the uh, the four types of prison governance regimes that you highlight. So these are listed as official governance, co-governance, self-governance, and minimal governance. And I thought it'd be cool if you could actually take some time and take us through some of those. Um, I had to read a couple things twice in the book just because, you know, this is something that doesn't occur to me and it's a world foreign to me. And I, and I really enjoyed sort of absorbing the way you sort of sorted all this stuff out. So t t take me again and the listeners through official governance. What's going on? there, what are we thinking about when you say a prison has an official governance structure? Official governance um, structures, prisons that are, are categorized like that, I think of as ones in which um, for most prisoners, most resources are provided by officials. Officials provide competent administration, and they provide a pretty high quality of governance over the social life of prisoners. So the state, yeah, in, in, in the form of the prison officials, is the primary source of governance for most prisoners most of the time. And that would correspond uh, to many of the Nordic prison systems that I discuss in the book, where their presence is, is uh, significant and substantial. 
So, so take me through that a bit more. So basically, a, a, a day in the life of a prisoner is pretty much any interaction they have outside of their own cell or their own sort of like bubble, if you will, is basically, as you said, uh, interacting with the official sort of stations in, in the prison, right? Like they're interacting with a guard, they, they have supervised time. Is that that's the kind of thing we're talking about? Yeah, it, it's that the rules that prisoners, uh, prison officials make are generally followed and the most important rules. It's that when you need access to food or healthcare or amenities, most prisoners get it from officials and officials can provide it. If there's conflict between prisoners, officials can uh, help avoid those problems, re resolve conflicts. If there's um, um, conflict, like you know, physical conflict, um, the state can punish the person rather than um, allowing sort of extra judicial or extra legal punishments to emerge. So the state is present. It has a lot of capacity and it uses that capacity to imprint its um, presence on prison social order. And then whereas I guess and we can get to some of those examples in a second, other, other prisons and other types of governance has, as you said, situations where a prisoner can perhaps seek sort of inter-prison justice among other groups or gangs or things like that. One of the things I think I remember reading in the book about the Nordic prison system is is like, of course, this culture gets created among the prisoners in, in those systems that they're, they actually end up avoiding physical conflict or, or anything of the sort because that they know immediately the hammer is kind of going to drop from the official structure, right? Is that that's pretty much there's always a watchful eye somebody's ready to jump in at any moment's notice that sort of thing yeah and 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 you know that's actually a very that's very important like the fact that prison officials uh, are present and they have a credible threat to um, intercede should something happen and prisoners know that and so because they know that they don't get into the fight and prison officials don't have to intercede so that is a system in which the expectations between prisoners and staff are sort of fully aligned and they're aligned on the sort of focal outcome of no fighting and we don't have to sort of punish prisoners. And that's that's what we want. Right. And I guess not only is that sort of culture clear, but it's also it's clear because it's enforced. I mean, it's one thing for a bunch of an official governance structure to say, don't do that or X, Y and Z is going to happen. But obviously, as you said, the vast amount of resources and the way that they structure these systems, uh, again, the Nordic prison system is one example, is, is in such a way that these threats and these rules are credible. They are enforced. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. And then, of course, we could talk about co-governance. So this one was really interesting. I enjoyed reading about it. So, so take us through that one. So I, I categorize prison regimes as co-governance regimes when prison officials and prisoners work together uh, explicitly to help administer and govern the prison. And this is a, a form of social order that has existed in the United States in more historical periods. It's a system that operates today in some Latin American prisons where um, prisoners will elect leaders and those leaders or representatives will work um, with officials and basically um, operate the prison. That would include um, making repairs, um, preparing food, um, repairing uh, police cars, doing paperwork, um, as well as um, doing the nightly count, doing searches of um, prisoner and family visits. It's almost as if um, certain prisoners are, are sort of employed by prison officials, although it's not um, official employment. It's a very, it's not covert. It's done in the open. Anyone visiting or working in the prison is aware that it's going on. And prison officials uh, basically, uh, you know, give over some of the sort of day-to-day -day practical operational activities for prisoners to do. 
And if I understood correctly from the book, and in some cases, they could just be taking over some work, but but in other cases, like over a period of time, some members might, for instance, become respected and actually have like a certain title or position in the prison as well. So it's it's it, it truly is not just a work situation, but also is like a co-governance situation, which is what I found very interesting in that section. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, on the particular cases that I examine, there's a, there's a sense that the prisoner leaders have legitimacy in the eyes of other prisoners, and they have um, authority in the eyes of prison officials. And that manifests in a variety of different ways. Some are that prisoners, I mean, they're given responsibility over security operations. So that indicates a level of trust by prison officials. Um, they often have keys to um, important doors, shall we say, as well as um, cell phones. And if there's some trouble that prison leaders can't handle, they'll call a prison warden or prison official um, to sort of help out um, if needed. So yeah, they're very much jointly producing um, the resources, administration, and governance of the facility. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. Let's do that now. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task, and I'm speaking with David Scarbeck today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Amy Willis. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Scarbeck today. So, so David, in the first half of our conversation, I thought was really great. It provided a bit of a backdrop for the for the rest of our discussion, and as well, we we already got into um, two of the four types of prison prison governance regimes that you outline in your book. Uh, that was official governance and co-governance. Um, one that I found extremely interesting in the book was this idea of, of self-governance. So take us through that. Well, there are prison regimes, again, uh, these are predominantly in Latin America, uh, that I call self-governing because prison officials have an incredibly little um, influence or effect on the everyday life of prisoners. And so in that chapter, I discuss a prison in Bolivia called San Pedro Prison, and from from the outdoor out, from from outside, it looks like a pretty standard Western prison. These large foreboding walls. Uh, there are um, uh, uniformed guards along the perimeter, um, you know, regulating access into and out of the prison. Um, but that's basically where they stop. They don't enter the facility. They provide incredibly few resources. They provide electricity and water. But uh, upon release, prisoners are expected to pay a sort of prorated share for their use of those things. And officials provide. It's a very minimal, gruel-like uh, food on a daily basis. Other than that, they provide no resources. They don't administer the facility. They don't govern social and economic interactions between prisoners. And so sort of in the absence of official governance, prisoners have not just sort of passively accepted that. They've sort of actively responded to the, to the very real governance needs that prisoners have. And so there's a sort of a pro- proliferation of sort of economic, civil society and sort of governing institutions within the prison. Uh, so the prisoners themselves are very much in charge of the prison on a sort of day-to-day basis. So they're not working, in, as in the co-governance regimes, hand-in-hand with, with officials. They're there 
responding to their perceived needs in the ways that they deem um, most appropriate. Right. As you said, in the, in the co-governance structure, one can picture that as, okay, there is a, a institutional framework and a set of rules and people are brought on to help with that institutional framework. But in the self-governance, it's, it seems that beyond sort of a minimal, as you said, almost like the four walls or however many they are, or like a very m- minimal structure, relatively speaking, the rest is sort of left up to the uh, to, to the prisoners and the population themselves. Yeah, that's right. And so I, mean, I sort of think of like the co-governance regime is, is more top down in that officials are more or less deciding, you know, what are the objectives? And then, you know, we're going to carry out some of those tasks. We'll ask prisoner leaders and prisoners to sort of do that, just, you know, sort of dance to our song. But the San Pedro one is much more bottom up. There's not someone there sort of deciding how things should go except for the prisoners themselves. And I think like a lot of people who um, perhaps aren't, uh, don't have as much faith in, let's say, the spontaneous order, if you will, might think of this as, oh, this is going to be interesting. You have sort of like a pit where there's like different groups of people beating each other up or something. But I have a fun quote here from the book again that, and I found this very cool to read about that. So and I think it was the same Bolivian prison you're referring to that you said, um, of course, officials play no significant government role. Prisoners have written rules, leaders are elected, and property is registered in a centralized record. So these guys are, are really well organized and even have systems of enforcement of property within self-governance in some cases. Yeah, again, I think we, we sort of underestimate the creativity and capability of people who've been incarcerated. And uh, they have the same needs as the rest of us. They're in an environment where the solutions that they find are often very different from ours because of their constraints. But yeah, they have, you know, they, they in this prison, uh, prisoners have to buy or rent a space to live. So many prisoners own their own cell. Within the prison, there are eight different housing sections. Each housing section has um, a, a, a sort of committee of elected representatives from residents in that housing area. They often have rules about who can live there. They have committees to facilitate education and cultural activities. They have a registrar that indicates who owns which cell, who was purchased from, where it's located, you know, who passed uh, owners were. So there was, you know, we have these institutions, we have these things in society because they're useful. They're useful as well in prison. So these people found the, it valuable to spend their time and energy to, um, you know, to, to create some of these things. Right. As you said, these people are, in fact, people and they're going to have the same tenants. Like, for instance, whether it's like a, a social enforcement, a cultural enforcement or, or literal force enforcement, the fact is you can't have property within your own prison or own something uh, unless it's sort of enforced in, in some way so of course it's it, it, it's it seems obvious when you think about it now but uh, it's one of those sort of like aha moments when i was reading in your book that oh yeah that that makes perfect sense that the question more is why wouldn't it be like that to me as i was reading it yeah and i mean this is where i think the comparative perspective becomes uh productive right because of course they would have it there but but wait most many other prisons don't have it and so why is it that Prisoners are enforcing control over property in the Bolivian prison, but not in the California prison or the English prison or the Nordic prison. And so it's about trying to just sort of, first of all, better better describe and understand those differences, but then try to get some sense about, you know, why is it that in some places this is very important for prisoners to do in others, they can assume someone else will do it, or maybe in another prison some other institution will enforce those property rights. So it's about understanding that sort of institutional diversity. And, and actually, I think I have a couple of notes coming up that'll help us get into that a little more. But before we leave that point, let's finish off with our with our fourth type of prison governance regime. So this one you, you just termed as minimal governance. So why don't you quickly take us through that? Minimal governance regimes are ones where prison officials uh, provide very little governance. Again, not many resources, 
no or incompetent administration and very low quality or no governance institutions. But there are also situations where the prisoners themselves also don't um, respond or not able or willing or interested in responding to provide those things as well. And so, you know, for this case, I look at the Andersonville Civil War prisoner of war camp in the U.S. Civil War. It operated for about the last 15 months of the Civil War. And essentially, like San Pedro, uh, prison officials put them in, in the prison and then left them on their own. But unlike San Pedro, they didn't have access to sort of economic resources on the outside. They didn't have access to sort of trade with the outside world. And so there's very little opportunity for, for them to engage in economic activity. And that means there's no reason to create the institutions to facilitate or promote the economic activity. So, so the seedlings that would kind of create that bottom up foundation where you see other prisoners flourishing, relatively speaking, were, were not in, in existence in some of these regimes that you looked at. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, when we think about emergent orders and sometimes they lead to good outcomes, there's no guarantee that they will. And so just because prisoners at San Pedro, you know, are able to develop, you know, pretty elaborate sets of institutions, um, you know, those things, those processes often fail. And so I thought it's important to sort of highlight a case where um, the sort of emergent order from prisoners was not successful and, and to understand why failure happens. And on that note, I think it's it's interesting to, to bring another factor into our conversation here, which is that, as you said, for a variety of different reasons, cult- culturally, socially, psychologically, even depending on what context the, the prison is in, again, around the world, um, the, the you note that the amount of governance in the style is like sort of a supply and demand thing, right? So like that more prisoner governance or action will arise if the structures aren't meeting the amount or demand that they have for sort of that order. So I guess, of course, this all depends on what kind of people are on the prison or, as you said, what sort of elements are there to, to construct that. But I, but I found that was really cool. You had like a sort of that uh, one of those uh, charts in your, in your book at the front that sort of like was the one of those yes, no things. So like, you know, it takes us through the whole thing. And I thought that was really cool. Like, you know, and, and the first stop on that chart was the official uh, go- governance stop, which was the Nordic example. So I thought that was pretty cool because right at the top you say, do officials provide the governance that prisoners want? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, then that's official governance problem solved. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then it goes on through there. So, so again, like I guess, like you were saying, it's sort of that back to what I was saying before. It's ultimately there's a demand for a certain form of governance, and if it's not being supplied, you observe that often. Often, if they can, the prisoners will rise to meet that demand in however way that sort of emerges. Yeah. It, you know, so I sort of think of it as like a gap in governance problem. You know, there's. A, a demand for a certain quality of governance and resources that prisoners have. And if, if the supply from prison officials meets it, there's not a lot of reason for them to act. If they don't provide the governance, then there's this unmet gap. And sometimes prisoners respond and are able to, for other reasons they're not. Um, and so it, it, it's very much sort of, yeah, supply and demand way to understand um you know, variation across those types of prison regimes. And I think uh, we're loading a lot of, if someone hasn't been exposed to your work before or haven't, hasn't had the chance to read the book, obviously that we're loading a lot of different information into people's heads. And I just want to actually continue doing that if people don't mind. So another factor that we can sort of throw in the, the blender of our conversation today, and, and as people learn about this, is the dichotomy between decentralized and centralized forms of prison order. So I really enjoyed how I was reading through your book. I was thinking of all these different things, different ways to organize and understand this in my head. And then we add like sort of another dimension to this whole thing. So maybe you could tell us a bit about what's going on there and what people will learn in your book when they dive deeper and when they get to it. Well, I mean, so the first part of the book looks at huge variation in the quality of official governance from very high to very low. 
Um, but even in prisons where the quality of official governance is in a sort of middle area and somewhat similar across prison systems, there's still a lot of variation in how prisoners govern themselves. And so I, I sort of think about it in terms of um, how important is collective action? Um, how much do prisoners invest in creating rules and regulations for themselves? How much do prisoners invest in procedures or bureaucracies to enforce those rules? The more that they do so, the more centralized they are. The less that they do so, the more decentralized they are. And so the, the sort of argument I make in the book is that the decentralized governance that's based on gossip, shaming, and ostracism has a lot of desirable characteristics from a prisoner's point of view. It's based on a person's reputation. And if you care about your reputation and your social standing, then gossip and ostracism are painful. Avoiding that pain provides an incentive to comply with the community's norms about what's acceptable behavior. Um, these are desirable also because they don't require a lot of collective action to implement. You can gossip about someone uh, very easily. It, they don't require a lot of investment in resources or sort of social infrastructure. Um, people can either conform to the norms or not, and others can either punish violation of the norms or not. And so when prisoners can use these uh, decentralized institutions, uh, they do so. But I argue that under some conditions, they're not able to, and that's when we should expect to see them invest more in more centralized institutions. And I think I think that ties back to what you're saying before too, that just because you have the seeds and different factors that create some sort of emergent order in, in, in one case doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to see the exact same thing in another case. So I guess where uh, a population falls on that sort of decentralized, centralized spectrum, if they have the opportunity to do so, that is, would certainly depend on a bunch of different factors, including the ones we discussed today. Yeah, that, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, the the I draw very heavily on the prison ethnography literature. And this work is sort of overwhelmingly focused on single site studies because it takes a tremendous amount of time and energy to sort of embed yourself in the local community, observe the important norms and governing activities that are happening. And so there's very little sort of comparative work in the sort of qualitative study of prison social order. And so looking at, you know, this variation, I think, reveals, you know, what prison scholars already know, but what I think systematically needs to be analyzed uh, more carefully is that, yeah, there's not some monolithic life in prison experience. It just, it varies a lot, just like societies vary, just like economies vary. And so that's why we need to bring this sort of institutional analysis to bear to try to make sense of it. And I guess, yeah, as you're saying, it'd be interesting if someone spent a lot of their life sort of going into the, the depth, if you will, of a certain prison or certain prison culture, and then a bunch of other people do that, it's very easy, to, and especially for the lay person to, when they're understanding this stuff, to sort of get sucked into this idea that, oh, I just read this thousand page book on this prison culture. I understand prison now, but what's really cool about your work is you're really talking about, you know, the, the breadth of all that depth and putting them beside each other. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and I'm, I, I've not even reached the, the, the extent of the continuum. You know, so I, in the book, I don't discuss prisons in Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa. I don't discuss Russian prisons or the gulag system. And there's work that's out there. It was, it was a matter of fatigue. That's why I stopped, you know, I, I, I worked on it for too long and was too fatigued. I mean, you know, as well as certain limitations based on uh, language access. But there's just, there's even more than what I had documented in my book. And so, you know, my hope is that there'll be, um, you know, PhD students who, you know, extend this comparative focus. And I think that we have a lot more to learn by 
casting our gaze even wider. I mean, the fatigue in and of itself is sort of like it speaks for itself, right? That is to say, if, if someone thinks that they're going to approach this and basically want to understand it within a week or or people and, and many people do, if, if they're not studying something, sort of put it away in their brain is, yeah, I think I kind of get what's going on there. Clearly, as you said, so just by doing that, you're not even scratching the surface on this issue of prison. But slightly more complicated. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I'd like another set of factors, I should say, that I'd like to add to our conversation is. Is, is this idea of like how, again, and this kind of gets more to the, I guess, the, the culture of the population in prison and, and more of the relative context of where it exists. So you say that the choices that prison officials make have an important influence on the cost of using decentralized governance. This ties back to what we were just talking before. But but of course, the, the, the factors about to list affect other things, too. So you talk about size, social networks and social distance. And I think sort of those those terms are well, at least social distance is interesting when I I thought something when I originally read it and then I realized what you meant. But we'll get to that. The sex. So obviously the, the the population size of the prison itself is, is one factor people need to keep in mind when they're they're learning about this and listening to you that that in and of itself is a huge difference maker. Yeah, the size of the prison population matters a great deal because it determines whether prisoners can rely on those low-cost decentralized mechanisms. Goss- gossip and ostracism are only powerful social sanctions if other people know who you are and know whether they should interact with you or not. And as prison populations get larger, knowing most other people's reputation gets much more difficult very quickly. And so the decentralized mechanisms don't work well in those situations. And that's when we see prisoners invest in more centralized institutions. So the size of the prison population is a crucial factor. Some people could probably relate to at least an element of this in real life. If, if someone's ever moved from, for instance, a very small town to a big town, uh, the the effect of gossip in those t- on each side of that paradigm is sort of quite different. I know a few people that have moved, for instance, from uh, northern Ontario towns where, you know, you have between like 20,000 and 50,000 people, and then you move to a city like Ottawa or Toronto. And at that point, it doesn't really matter whose cousin knows who at the grocery store anymore. So. If you will. So it's it's one of those things that it's, it's something that we're all just used to outside. There's different, you know, sizes of cities and things like that. But but of course, on, on the inside, on, in, the, in the prison world, the same must be true, right? That the population has that big effect. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, the anonymity of city life and something that you might say to someone passing, you know, driving past you in, in you know, major city, if you said it in a small town, you know, that person might tell your mother and, you know, then you'll get in trouble in the next week. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's something very intuitive about this idea that in small communities, we have to sort of cherish and protect our sort of social standing. And actually move, moving on to the next point there, the other factor, which, which was social networks. So, of course, we're not talking about Facebook here. So tell us uh, what, what you meant by this and why this is an interesting factor for people to consider when learning about this subject. Sometimes uh, a person's social network, their sort of pre-prison community of people that they interact with can amplify um, these reputation-based governance mechanisms. So in the, the chapter on England and Wales, I, I'd look at how uh, the social networks that people have in, when they're incarcerated, they bring these social networks from the street into the prison. The, they are located in prisons close to their home in England. So when you arrive, you often already know people who are in prison. While you're incarcerated, both you and other prisoners can communicate with people, friends and family back home, perhaps gossiping about your behavior. And when you leave the prison, when you both leave the prison, you may continue to interact um, even in the future after incarceration. So those dense social networks sort of increase the time horizon for the interaction, meaning that 
keeping your reputation in good standing is more important. And they provide a tremendous amount of information and amplification of gossip about other people's actions. So in England, they've got a large number of fairly small prisons. Prisons are sited close to a person's home. And there's a correctional philosophy that they should incarcerate people close to home so that they can maintain healthy relationships with friends and family. So you're not going to a prison far away full of strangers. You're going to a prison very close, perhaps in the city center of where you live. And you're going to know people when you get there and they're going to know you back in the neighborhood when you get out. And I guess that relates up to the other factor there, which is the, the social distance idea, which in, in this time of pandemic doesn't mean the same thing as you meant in your book. So, but what did you mean there? Yeah. So social distance is a sociological and anthropological term um, that tries to get at the idea that um, the homogeneity of a group can often affect how cooperative they are. And what do I mean in terms of of, of homogeneity? I would say that it typically, it does include things like um, ethnic background. It also includes religious views, uh, cultural backgrounds, ideologies, worldviews, the sense to which we sort of agree on what, you know, what the nature of social interactions is all about. And so in the economics literature, they found that public good provision is less effective in communities with high ethnic diversity. I sort of make an argument in the opposite direction, which is that if people in a community are very similar and they live similar lives before being incarcerated, they're going to be more likely to sort of be able to cooperate and, um, you know, sort of work together to govern. And so this prison that I look at is, it's a, a very uh, controversial and uh, distinctive facility. Um, but it, the selection effect to get into that prison means that the people who are there are in some respects very similar and sort of important characteristics. And so I argue that that um, that 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 similarity can help promote self-governance amongst prisoners. And and I guess like in, in some prisons, we, we when it comes to prison groupings or, or gangs, if you will, and things like that, obviously, like some of that social distance where this comes into play, if I'm understanding this correctly, and I understood the book correctly, which is that you will have, for instance, people becoming a group or, or feeling closer to each other social distance wise, if they if they share the same religion, and that might put them opposed to another group in prison, for instance, if they are on, for instance, the same paradigm, a Catholic versus a Muslim or something like that. I'm just throwing an example out there. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's again, I think we have parallels in our sort of our non-incarcerated everyday life, which is that if you find out that when you meet someone, they share your religion, you may have sort of more interest in being their friend. If you like the same football team, you're going to bond more quickly than if you didn't like, or if you liked opposing football teams. So, I mean, in the same way that we sort of like you know, we, we, we like people with shared interests and we like people who sort of view the world like we do. That's the sort of very natural way in which people are going to sort of sort themselves socially outside of prison, but also within prison as well. Right, yeah, it's interesting as, as you're saying that, you know, and as you said very early on in our conversation too, that, you know, of course we all are humans. So like a lot of the same tenets are noticeable, but of course the crucial difference is that you're put in an environment where you're, you're not at all self-selecting. You're you, The environment is selected for you and you're sentenced, if you will. So it's interesting that a lot of these things that we just talked about that happen on the outside are, pro are of course amplified in, uh, in, in prison environments because, well, you're, you're forced to do so. Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree. I mean, so that's one of the, from a social science perspective, it's interesting because most of the time we get to choose who we work with, who we socialize with, um, who we spend time with. But in prison, that's essentially eliminated. And, you know, what we know from sort of uh, empirical studies, from experimental studies, is that if you can opt out of interactions with people that you think are opportunistic, 
the cooperative people find each other and they do better. And the uncooperative people are sort of left on their own and they do worse. In prison, you can't opt out of interacting with most other prisoners most of the time. So it's sort of like in the face of that constraint, how do prisoners respond? How do they overcome that constraint? And shifting gears a little bit, one more pillar that I want to address before, before we go head to the formal wrap-up is, is prison gangs, right? And of course, this is obviously a very interesting topic in the in the context specifically of what we're talking about today. And of course, something that's one of those sort of cultural elements that we all see and hear about in the media, movies, and, and things like that. But um, uh, perhaps the term community responsibility system isn't the first thing that people think of to associate with when I say the the term prison gangs. But, but it's very interesting that that's the way of course, you, you frame the device in the book and, uh, and, and you, you, of course, go on to talk about a lot of factors that indeed make them make them so. But but before I go on to that, t- tell us a little bit more and elaborate on, on that a little bit more about what you mean by in, in reality, these are community responsibility systems. Yeah. Um, so a community responsibility is system is a sort of a phrase used in much of economic history, uh, mid to late medieval period. And it's basically capturing the characteristics of a group or, or of a community in which everyone has to be a part of some group. Within each group, each member is responsible for each other group member's actions and obligations. So if in the prison context, if a person in one group incurs a drug debt to a drug dealer in a different group, not only is that individual who incurred the debt responsible for its repayment, but the entire group is held accountable for it. So what that does is create a tremendous amount of internal group pressure to regulate group members' uh, actions, but that is done in order to ease across group interactions, whether it's social or economic. And, and that describes fairly well a significant part of the uh, sort of day-to-day importance of prison gangs in the California prison system. And then you list a bunch of factors that make make it so that, you know, these community responsibility systems indeed work. And I kind of like those those nerdier points when we get to them, like especially sociologically speaking, you know, like you, you talk about that the group must rely on clearly de- de- delineated membership. The group requires a way to monitor members' behavior and that strangers need to know which group others affiliate with. Um, I, I found the one about, uh, you know, we're requiring a way to monitor uh, members' behavior as, 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 you know, one of those things, again, obvious, but when you think about it, like very specifically, it makes perfect sense. And of course, I think that ties back to all the other factors we talked about with size, social network, social distance. Um, at the end of the day, any system that these people are living under, uh, if there are groups and there is more of a decentralized form of governance, the, the only way that's either semi-enforceable or even tolerable is if indeed the groups that people are a part of can keep an eye on each other and we either enforce or support or whatever the case may be. So I found that very interesting specific point that if that factor is not there, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, so the gangs need to constrain who has access to their reputation and their obligations. So there's restrictions on who can join the gangs and the gangs create rules. Like, for example, in some prisons, there are rules about how into debt a person can go for drugs. So they don't want someone to have, you know, spend hundreds of dollars on drugs that they can't possibly pay back to so say, you know, can only spend 10 or 20 or 50 bucks on it. So they're creating rules so that their members do not create obligations on the broader group that it doesn't want to sort of take on uh, voluntarily. And, um, and so, and then the idea as well with the, with the, you know, knowing which 
uh, groups others affiliate with. Again, I, I, as I was thinking about this stuff, this is st- stuff that we see so superficially uh, through different elements of culture we absorb. Ah, there's prison gangs. Obviously, if there's a neo-Nazi prison gang, you know, they're obviously going to be proud to wear whatever symbol they want to wear for that. But but it's interesting that, again, and this is the tail end of our conversation now, we can see there's a lot more subtlety and sophistication going on with this than just like w- tattooing yourself a certain way because, hey, that's who I identify with. There's That's on top. Of, that's a tip of the iceberg on a lot of other things we've been talking about. So I, I really had more of an appreciation for that small sociological point of how important it is to know which group others affiliate with in prison after I read your book. So I thought that was another very interesting factor that, again, if that's not there, organization is almost not possible in some of these prisons. Yeah. And, you know, part of the reason is that they can't rely on credible um, um, third party uh, certifiers, right? I can pull out my driver's license and it tells you very credibly information about me. I can show you my credit report. Um, I can get letters of you know recommendation from former employers, but those things are not as readily available for prisoners to vouch about things that they care about, you know. And that's sometimes gangs they're affiliated with. It may be crimes they've committed, neighborhoods that they've grown up from, things that people might want to lie about. But it would be really helpful if other prisoners could credibly um, identify who's a liar and who's not. And so. Yeah, you know, they, they face the same problem us with different constraints and they come up with different solutions as a result. And these are sometimes unusual. So tattooing is very common in the California prison system today. It used to be much less prevalent and tattoos can send a very credible signal of information because they're permanent. You can't like scrub off a lie in the form of a tattoo and they're very prominent. That's why we see them on the face, on hands, on necks, because Anybody can see those, especially in the prison context where privacy is often lacking. Anyone can easily see those. And so putting a permanent claim about you on your body, well, that says that, yeah, you probably did affiliate with that person, do those things, because no one who didn't would uh, you know, have the sense to do that themselves. So gangs are trying to find ways. So, so if you tattoo a gang, your gang's name on your forehead, that's a pretty clear indication to strangers around you who you affiliate with. And I also argue that to some degree, the racial and ethnic segregation that exists within the California prison system today is a result of the need to sort by groups so that complete strangers have some sense about who any particular prisoner who they don't know affiliates with. And, you know, this, this, this idea is, is consistent with the, um, the fact that the sort of qualitative and ethnographic accounts of prison in California in the 1950s describe a prison system that was far less racially segregated and where ethnic ethnicity was far less salient than it is today. So society in general has gotten far less racially prejudiced, yet racial overt racial prejudice has increased in prison over the same period. And I think it's because this move from individuals to groups and this need to credibly signal group affiliation has become so important in California. That word signal, right? Like the economists often talk about signaling and there's also the idea that prices aren't just something you pay at a store. It's signaling actually a, a whole bundle of information. So again, in reading your book, I have a, a whole new appreciation for just that that small aspect, right? Is that it's not just these these aesthetic choices that gangs are making because it looks cool or, or intimidating. That might be one factor actually. But but as a matter of fact, it, it, it's, it's, it's effect one tattoo on an arm or on a neck or whatever it could, is could be like actually a signal that comes with a whole bundle of stuff that people are supposed to know about you. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a shortcoming of the sort of cultural aesthetic 
or um, purely racist explanations for gangs. For sure, for sure. You know, there, there's a lot of prisons that don't have gangs. And there are lots of prison systems that had gangs at one point, but not another. There's a lot of variation here. And so it's, it, there's, there's practical, real reasons why people turn to gangs. There's a lot of downsides about gangs um, that I can go into, but there's a lot of problems with them. But there's reasons why prisoners turn to them. And um, so I think that's sort of important. We can't just sort of say these are preferences or cultural beliefs that drive this. Right, for sure. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, it ultimately does come back to a lot of incentives there too. And, and that happens again, back to what we were saying at the top of the conversation on the inside and on the outside, right? So the, the same justifications are made for prison gangs that could be made, you can understand or sympathize with someone's choice to join like, you know, a, a gang on the outside or like, you know, the mafia, for instance, in Europe, things like that. Like these aren't just, as you said, <laughs> aesthetic and cultural preferences. There's often a lot of different things going on with the in incentive structures in these areas. So, uh, David, let me just say we've we've talked about a lot. Our time is, is pretty much almost wound down here, but I think we covered a, a lot in, in that short amount of time, relatively speaking, that we had together. So in every episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on their exploration of the question today, if we can. Let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on how prisoners govern? If, if you wanted to leave someone with a couple of takeaways or, or, or one snippet and all we've talked about today, what would that be? What would you like to leave people with? When officials govern effectively, prisoners won't. When prison officials fail to govern, um, there's a very good chance that prisoners will. And the way that prisoners govern is going to depend a lot on the size of the prison, the social networks that influence that community, and how much the social distance of the community uh, makes them very similar and more cooperative or more diverse and more divisive. David Scarbeck, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you very much. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 